Last week we considered the doctrine of divine healing, both spiritual healing and physical healing are parts of the atonement, part of what Christ died to accomplish for us, and we learned that, like salvation, healing is ongoing for believers. It, it takes place in our lives. God can heal us physically. We can trust that he still heals, and we know that the final healing, the final effect of what Christ did on the cross will take place at the resurrection when Jesus returns. And today, we're going to learn about that resurrection, and we're going to begin to talk about doctrines relating to the last things or to the end time, sometimes called eschatology. Now, There are four beliefs that we're gonna cover in the coming weeks, and they're all a part of this. And so if you don't hear me say something that you think is part of the end times or of learning about those things, that doesn't mean that we won't cover it. If we don't hear about the judgment or the new heavens and the new earth today, don't be alarmed because those questions are gonna be coming around in coming weeks. But that said, I'm not gonna be able to answer everyone's questions about eschatology, nor am I going to try. In fact, in these messages, I don't intend to address theories or timelines at all. Rather, we're gonna be looking at core beliefs Christians should hold about the end times, what's important to believe, regardless of which timeline you may prefer. So that said, this week we're talking about the blessed hope. And in my time as a pastor, I've conducted funerals for infants, I've preached funerals for young adults who overdosed and died or who died of a disease, and I've, I've also had the privilege of officiating at funerals for saints and longtime members of this congregation who served the Lord faithfully right up to their last breath. And while I may attend more funerals than most people, I doubt that my story and experience is really much different than yours in as much as I'm sure that you have loved ones and friends that you've lost as well. And there's an enormous difference between the funeral of a believer and the funeral of an unbeliever. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to be in both, but I sometimes get like, not just front row, but like looking out on people views of both of these kinds of funerals, of funerals of people who have died and they were believers and most of the people in attendance are believers and and know that they were believers in the Lord. And I've also preached funerals where The person who passed away was not a believer and most of the people present were not believers either. And standing in front of a room of people that that you don't really know and that you aren't sure what they believe about death, it's a privilege because I get to preach the gospel to them, but it's also strange in a way. But there's an empty feeling oftentimes and often people will have a glazed over look of sorrow without any real expectation. But when you preach to a room full of people who are celebrating the life of someone they expect to rise again, to see again at the resurrection, there's often a deep sorrow at the loss, but alongside that, there is a joy and a hope for the future. It's truly a celebration. Believers in Christ have a blessed hope that Jesus will return, and when he does, we will rise, we will be resurrected. This doctrine states this, the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Christ and their translation together with those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord is the imminent and blessed hope of the church. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to define and examine a few of the terms in this doctrine to help us to understand what we mean by a few of these things. But then we're going to take it beyond the realm of curiosity and explanation, and we're going to apply this doctrine to our lives because the doctrine of the end times is not just about the future. 
The doctrine of the end times is about how you live your life today. And that's so important to remember because if you get all caught up in timelines and all you're ever doing is trying to scratch your itch of curiosity about what will happen when, then you might actually forget that when the Apostle Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, he wrote it to the seven churches who were in Asia at the time that they might know how to serve Christ right where they were in the first century. And so for us, the doctrine of the end things is not just about scratching an itch of curiosity for the future, but about saying, how ought we to live in the Pioneer Valley in the 21st century? And so we're going to define things, but we're also going to apply things. Let's start with the idea of resurrection and of translation. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 53. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53, those verses say this, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. The Bible teaches not just that the dead will be raised, but that believers will be resurrected. And there is a distinction between those two ideas. Paul says that when Jesus returns, those who have believed in his death and his resurrection for salvation, and they have themselves died with Christ, and they have died physically, that they will be raised imperishable. This means that their bodies will no longer be subject to death and decay. Revelation 21.4 puts it this way, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? That's our hope as believers. And this implies that we will no longer be subject to sinful desires or temptations either. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 teaches us that the sting of death is sin, meaning that the cause or what tempts us uh, or what, what brings about the effect of death is sin in our lives. So if the result is removed, if death is removed, that means the cause, the sting of death that is, sin, must also be removed. In other words, there will be no more death, therefore there will be no more sin. And while we know that our resurrection bodies will not be subject to death and sin, we don't know exactly what we will be like. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote in verses 42 to 43, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. We won't be subject to the same weaknesses, dishonors, and decay that we are currently subject to. Paul uses the example of a seed. He says in verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Do we have any flower gardeners here? Anybody who likes to grow flowers? You know that when you sow those seeds, they're very small. And if you aren't aware, if you've never planted before, if you handed that seed to somebody who doesn't garden, they would have no idea what that seed would produce. There would be no inkling based on what was in, your, in their hand, what was going to come of it, but put it in the ground and allow it to grow. And while the seed is connected to the flower, you didn't see, you couldn't tell what was going to come of it. So the two are connected, but they are not 
identical. One produces something that is much greater, and so it will be for those who have died in Christ. Our bodies will be planted one way, and it's not that they are totally disconnected from the future body, but they will be raised in so much more glory, even as a flower has much more glory than the seed from which it grew. And so, that's how we will be. Paul refers to this as a spiritual body, but he doesn't mean that you will be like a soul without a body or that you'll be disembodied. Rather, spiritual is a quality that you're gonna possess in a greater degree in your resurrection body. And sometimes we wonder, well, what will that be like? What will that look like? John, Jesus' apostle, wrote, 1 John 3, 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So what we can say about our resurrection bodies is that they will be like Jesus. We will be like Jesus' resurrection body. We don't know exactly what that will be like, but we know that we'll be like him. And when he was resurrected, we know this, Jesus could walk through doors, but he could still eat fish on the beach. He could appear suddenly in a room, but Thomas could still touch the scars in his hands and in his side. We don't know exactly what it will be like, except that we will be imperishable, have greater glory than our present form, and we will be like Jesus. Now getting back to the language of this doctrine, it uses the word translation, which is a kind of a funny word to use and maybe a little hard to understand, but to translate something is to change it from one form to another. So those who are alive, we're told, when Jesus returns will not be physically resurrected because by definition, Resurrection requires that you're already dead. And so if you're not dead when Jesus shows up, what happens? Well, we use the term translated. You'll be changed. You won't die first and then change. You'll just be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, the word of God says. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. If you're a believer, your blessed hope is that Jesus is returning and that when he does, whether you're dead or alive, you will be changed. What a day that's going to be, amen? That's going to be a great day. And I need to describe one more part of this doctrine before we begin to think about how do we apply the doctrine of resurrection. A crucial component to our belief about the end times and what's going to occur is that Jesus is coming back. God's word does not present this as a metaphor to be spiritualized. When it says that Jesus is going to return, it doesn't present a, a, a metaphor as if, uh, as if we're supposed to think about that as maybe a spiritual return or something like that. Just prior to World War II, Humanity had made significant progress. Governments were optimistic about the future. There were a lot of peace treaties that had been made, and a lot of churches, pastors, theologians, they kind of bought into the optimism of the age, and they started to develop the idea that maybe what was going to happen since we'd achieved this great peace after the First World War was that we were just gonna continue to see the church grow, peace spread, and eventually we'd kinda usher in a humanitarian utopia that was like the reign of Christ, that was like the return of Jesus, but he didn't actually need to come back, and this doctrine became very, very prevalent prior to the First World War, and then World War II happened and kinda you know, crushed it. Because, you know what, thinking, oh, we're getting so good, we're so peaceful, we're making so much advancement, and then World War II, that kind of ended that. But people, even today, still seem to recycle and rehash this idea. You know what? Humanity is going to progress. 
We're going to become so good. We're going to become so, so technologically advanced that it's going to usher in kind of a utopia. And some Christians begin to teach and, and, and think that maybe what's going to happen isn't that there's going to be an apocalypse, it's going to be difficulty in the end, and then Jesus will return, and he's the only solution to humanity's sin problem. But maybe actually what will happen is, you know, the church will spread and it will grow so big that it'll kind of usher in a spiritual reign of Christ on earth. Let me tell you though, church, this is not what the Bible teaches about the return of Christ. It's very clear that when the scripture says Jesus is coming back, it doesn't mean we are to spiritualize that, but that we are to believe that Jesus will one day physically return. And while we do believe that the church will continue to expand and that more and more people will come to faith, these theologies confuse human progress with the need we have for salvation from sin. They place too much hope in humanity and not enough hope in Christ. And in contrast to these ideas of ushering in the kingdom of God on earth, Jesus himself said that he will return. In John 14, two to three, he said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And if that's not enough for us, then when Jesus ascended into heaven and the apostles stood looking in Acts chapter one, verse 11, angels appeared and said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, it won't be a spiritual return, it will be a physical return. Jesus is coming, he will return to earth. He is coming, but we don't know when. All we know is that it could be at any time. That's what the word imminent means. He could come at any moment. Turn to Matthew chapter 24 with me again, if you would. In verse 44, it says this. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is coming back physically, and when he does, we will be resurrected, or if we're alive when he returns, translated and changed. And when he returns, those who have faith in him will be changed. If we're still alive, we'll be changed. If we're dead, we'll be resurrected. We'll have imperishable, glorified bodies, and this could happen at any time. In fact, if you notice, as we read the Apostle Paul, he said those who have died will be resurrected, but he always said this, but we will be changed, indicating it was his hope his desire, his belief that he would be alive when Christ returned. It doesn't mean he was teaching something that was false. He was indicating the attitude that we ought always to have, that we hope to be here when Jesus returns because his return is imminent. He might come at any moment. But since this is not only a doctrine for the future, it's for the present, we need to apply it. And here's how we want to apply it. You should keep watch for the coming of the Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said it. Watch for the coming, be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. He's coming at a time you do not expect. How many of you know that when you arrive at someone's house to pick them up, there are two kinds of people. You pull up to the driveway early in the morning, you're gonna pick them up for work or a trip, and you sit there and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and eventually you decide to call them, and when you do, you hear something like, hello. Hey, I'm here to pick you up, I'm, I'm in the driveway. Pick me up. Yeah, for work, hurry, we're going to be late. Work, 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 oh yeah, yeah, I'll be down in a minute. And 15 minutes later, 
They come out, their hair's dripping wet. You go, did you take a shower? We're gonna be late. What are you doing? So you've got those and then you've got the other kind, right? You pull up in the driveway and before you get up and stop the car and put it in park, they're coming out the door. They're ready to go. You're going, how did you even know? I was here like, I was waiting. I was looking out the window. I saw the headlights flash across the window as you came. And so I came out because I was ready. Maybe you remember this from when you were dating or, or maybe you're dating now and you experience it. You camp out by the window, waiting for your boyfriend or your girlfriend to pull up because you just can't wait to see that person. Concerning the second coming of Jesus, we wanna be like that latter person, watching, waiting expectantly. Second Timothy 4.8 says this, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing who have loved the fact that he's coming again. Jesus is coming, and pretty soon, he'll pull up in the driveway of the sky, and there will be a cry of command, and the voice of an archangel. He won't honk his horn at you, but there will be the trumpet sound, and there will be no excuses to say, hold on, I'll be out in a minute, Jesus. We have to be ready, watching for him, loving and longing for the coming of the return of the Lord, longing that will motivate us in several ways. Because that longing isn't just about the future, is it? The longing produces a motive in us. And the first way that longing for Christ, that watching for Jesus motivates our lives now is that you can have hope in sorrow. It motivates hope in the midst of the sorrows of our lives. Life is difficult and it can be very, very discouraging at times, can't it? Sometimes the sorrows of life tempt us to despair, to give up hope, to give up courage, to give up faith. And I'm sure that you have circumstances that trouble you right now in your life. Perhaps even some circumstances that you feel like threaten the hope you have. But we should be a people of hope. Hope ought to be pervasive in our church and in our culture and in our families and in our attitudes and our conversation. That's hard to do, isn't it? It's really easy to justify cynicism. I even hear some people say, well, we're from the Northeast and that justifies our cynicism. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't justify our cynicism. We're not just from the Northeast. That's not our primary identity, is it? I'm from another kingdom now. I'm from heaven now. And so that means that my primary identity is not a cynic from the Northeast. My primary identity is I have hope in Jesus who's coming at any moment, and my hope is always in him. It's easy, though, to justify cynicism with the way the government is going, the economy, the culture, international politics. You can't even talk about balloons these days with what China flying them all over the place. I mean, the one thing we thought was safe to talk about with all hope, like balloons. You can't even talk about balloons without being a cynic now. They ruined it. Add to that all of the personal pain that we feel and all the grief we have in our bodies and in our relationships and, and you have the perfect mixture for despair. But in spite of all the difficulties that we face in life, including those that may come as a result of following Jesus, God's word reminds us, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
there's something being prepared for us. There is a day when God's glory will be revealed and we are looking to the unseen, the promise of Christ's coming and the promise of our resurrection. Christian, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to him. I told you last week that the doctrine of divine healing and the doctrine of resurrection are closely linked and that when we divide them, that's when it's easy to fall into error. Perhaps you're going through trouble, you're going through pain, you're going through sorrow, and you're tempted to give up trusting God. Not that that's gonna really change your circumstance, it won't, but maybe you're tired of trying to reconcile your faith in in God with the pain of your life. Perhaps you even heard the testimonies of healing that we shared last week, and rather than taking them as an encouragement, you felt like they were barbs to you. Instead of hearing that God can heal you and you can trust him, you were just reminded that God hasn't healed you. You were reminded that your pain remains. But remember, divine healing isn't our ultimate hope. It's not where we place our hope that my body in the present life will be healed. Yes, we can have faith. Yes, we can trust the Lord. And yes, we believe that. But that's not the ultimate hope. Rather, our blessed hope is the return of Jesus and our resurrection. And the testimonies that you heard last week are not evidence that you're not good enough to be healed. They are reminders that there is an even greater healing that is coming when there will be no more sorrow and no more pain. We should encourage one another with these things. I confess that my speech is not often enough filled with the hope of the resurrection. Sometimes we don't know what we should say to one another when we go through trials. Maybe we listen too much to the doubts of the world and convince ourselves that it's cliche to say something like, yes, brother, but the resurrection is coming. Yes, sister, but our hope is not in this world but we should not hesitate to say, set your eyes on Jesus. Don't hope in this life, but hope beyond it. Be encouraged, brother. Be encouraged, sister. The resurrection is coming. Jesus is pulling into the driveway. Are you watching for him? That ought not sound cliche to our ears. It ought to be what rings true in our speech to one another. Believer who is hurting, who is in pain watching a loved one fade, who is grieving a loss, who is estranged from family and friends for the sake of Christ, who encounters trouble or struggles with their, with their feelings or with anxiety and fear about the future. My message to you today is not that life for a Christian contains no sorrow. My message is not to say you shouldn't feel sorrow. Life is hard. But we do not fix our hope on the things of this life. Our blessed hope is the resurrection. And so as you grieve, rejoice in hope. In your pain, rejoice in hope. Cast your worries on the Lord and rejoice in hope. Because for the believer, we don't say that life isn't sorrowful. We just say that alongside that sorrow, there is a joy inexpressible and filled with glory because our hope is ever, always in the return of Christ, our Savior, and the resurrection of the dead when we see him again. The hope that we have for the return of Christ and the resurrection not only gives us relief from sorrow, but it also motivates us toward purity. You can have a passion for purity. Imagine that you've been 
invited to a meet and greet with your favorite musician. You're gonna go meet this person. You wake up the day of the event, you're excited. You wanna feel your best. You know you feel your best when you work out. So you go and you, you work out hard. You work up a, a great lather of sweat and then you're gonna work outside. So you go outside and, and you're doing landscaping or maybe you're doing framing or something like that and you work all day and you get off the clock at five o'clock and you, you rush home and you grab a quick bite to eat. You change your clothes and then you head to this event to meet the musician that you admire. But when it's your turn to meet the artist and to shake hands, you notice that she seems just a little standoffish. She shakes your hand, but kind of like this. And then as soon as you let go, she's ready for this interaction to be over. In fact, it seems a little bit brusque to you. You, can, you think you can perceive just a hint of disgust in her face, and it's really short and abrupt. Would you take offense at that? Would she be wrong to be a bit repulsed by you? You'd sweated, you'd worked outside in the sun all day, you changed your clothes, but you didn't shower, and so you probably stank a little bit when you went to meet her. Maybe, in fact, you don't have a right to be offended, maybe she has a right to be offended. I mean, with your mouth, you say to her, you're my favorite musician, but with your scent, you say to her, I have no admiration or honor for you whatsoever. I did not prepare to meet you. In reality, you'd never do that, would you? You might even take the day off work just so you could be better prepared to go and meet your favorite admired musician. You'd take a shower, you'd do your hair, you'd put on deodorant, you might even put a little beard oil in to just you know, smell good and look a little bit better. It would be great if, if, that, you know, if that was for you. And, and through your preparation and your cleanliness, you'd indicate the importance you placed on that moment. But go again with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and this time, let's read verse 3 as well. It says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I mean, this kind of purity that those who are looking for Jesus have, it's purity from sin and it's purity from the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 reminds believers that we have been cleansed from our past sin. I I summarized it or I, I adapted it a few minutes ago when we were taking communion, but it says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greed nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God has cleansed us from our former sin and rebellion against him, and we should keep ourselves in that state of purity. Keeping our eyes fixed on the hope of what will be reminds us to remain pure. We're often tempted to despair that this world is all that there is and we can be overwhelmed with the circumstances and temptations we feel. They seem so powerful. Maybe they almost feel inevitable at times in your life. They threaten to crush the hope that you have in Christ and his ability to conquer and his ability to overcome your sin and and the hope that you have in his returning and that he will reign in righteousness and purity because it just feels like sin is inevitable in your life. Let me give you an example of this. Maybe... 
And this could apply in a whole host of things, but, but here's one instance. Maybe you're a young lady and you're looking for companionship and love, and you've grown up in a culture that's worldly and it's confusing and it tells you that you don't need any man's approval and at the same time wants to sell you a million different ways to try to catch a man's attention. And you began a relationship with a man that you thought loved you, but you've started to question that. You recently gave your life to Christ. You're starting to learn about your true identity, who you are in Jesus, what Jesus is, and who he's changed you to be, and what it means to be in him, what it means to walk in purity in your life. You've started to turn down his sexual advances since you learned that God created sex for marriage. And you're considering moving out because you know that God doesn't want you to live in that state before marriage. And, And he's starting to react to these things, to your Christian faith. He treats you poorly. He mocks your faith. He ignores you. He says manipulative things to try and place the blame on you. And now you feel lonely. You wonder if you can ever really find love, especially if you were to lose your relationship with him. And you're overwhelmed with the thought that if you continue to follow Jesus, you may lose the thing you've cared about most on earth to this point. So you're contemplating whether you should ease up a bit on the church thing, the Jesus thing. You could translate this to to many other situations in life where you feel like the pull of the present world is overwhelming your commitment to Christ. It could be fear over money, it could be an addiction, but whatever the circumstance threatens to overwhelm your faith, I wanna encourage you to watch for the coming of the Lord. Get your eyes on Jesus. Set your mind, not on the troubles of life, but set your mind on things above. Don't focus your thoughts on the fears you have, but on the faith you have in Christ who died for you, was raised from the dead, and is coming back for you. Remember that the things of this world are passing away, the scripture tells us. They are transient. They're gonna be done with soon. We read in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 4.8 just a few moments ago, it talks about loving and longing for the return of Christ. But listen to how Paul followed up on his own confession where he said he's gonna, he's gonna do this for all who love the appearance of Christ. There's a crown laid up for all who love his appearing. He followed that up in 2 Timothy 4.9-10 with this saying, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Demas, someone who was helping Paul on his mission to preach the gospel, abandoned Paul because he was in love with the present world. In other words, Demas had his eyes focused on the things below, not on the things above. Are you in love with the present world? It's a fitting question that we ought to ask ourselves. Do you wrestle to give up sin? Are your eyes fixed on the present? Entertainment, career, sports, your sexual identity, a relationship. Are they fixed so much there that the coming of the Lord seems distant and vague? In fact, maybe you're not sure you're even looking forward to it. I urge you, brother, sister in Christ, keep watch. Jesus is coming. And longing for him means that we will keep ourselves pure from the things of the world so that we will be ready when he returns. That day is coming at a moment that we don't know and that we can't can't predict, nor do we expect. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. And so a believer who loves that and longs for it, that means we'll keep ourselves unstained and pure from the world. Paul's words of warning concerning Demas lead us to the final way that keeping watch for Jesus' return motivates us, and it's that you can have an urgency for the mission of Christ. 
you go down the street and you visit the cemetery and you walk down the rows of markers, it's, it's awe-inspiring to imagine the graves of believers opening one day when Jesus returns. And while cemeteries may not be your favorite place to, to be or to take a walk right now, I think if I, got to pick, if I had to pick a place where I was going to be when Christ returns, I think I'd probably pick a cemetery. Because <laughs> I just want to, it'd be kind of cool to see what, what is that going to look like? How is God gonna, going to do that when, when he returns? But as awe-inspiring as that thought is, it's terrible to think of its opposite, which is also true. In the end, not only will believers be raised, but unbelievers will be raised as well. Believers will be raised to eternal life, but unbelievers will be raised to eternal judgment, the scripture says. And we're gonna talk more about judgment, both of believers and unbelievers in a coming message, but it's a sobering reality to think that there are so many who do not know the Lord, who have rejected him, that will one day awaken to the reality of eternal separation from God. And what are the people that we work with, that we converse with, that we pass by, that are our, our neighbors? Think of what the resurrection means for them. If they don't know the Lord, they will miss the eternal life that he has made available through faith in Jesus. And it's a sobering thought because hopefully it puts our fears and our worldly attachments into their proper perspective. If we keep the coming of the Lord in front of us, focusing on it as we should, it will motivate the mission that Jesus left for us to make disciples. We don't want to be Demases, do we? In love with the present world and abandoning the mission of Christ to fulfill whatever desires that we have in this present world. Let's not allow fears over resources in the present or people's opinions of us in the present to prevent us from carrying on the work of the Lord with urgency in our lives. I mean, should we not as Christians be stirred up with a passion for the coming of the Lord and as a result, a passion for those who don't know what that means, a passion for those who are not ready to meet Jesus when he returns, Maybe you've heard the phrase, he's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. There's no such thing. It's not possible. Our minds should be so much more in heaven and on the coming of the kingdom of God. Because wouldn't that cause us to throw our present cautions to the wind about looking foolish in this world? And instead, would we not then desire to become fools for Christ because we see the urgency of his mission? that people would be with him forever? Wouldn't that cause us to reevaluate our passions and to reconnect them to Christ and to his mission? Wouldn't it cause us to reassess our priorities and rework them around people and the people that God has called us to reach? Wouldn't we labor more for them in prayer because we want them to know our king who is coming? Amen. We should be more heavenly minded and we'll be more earthly good our prayer should not be only that God would increase our burden for the lost, but that he would expand our vision for his coming kingdom. Perhaps if we thought more about it and saw it more clearly, we would be filled with a passion to proclaim it so that as many as possible may be redeemed and experience it with us. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, known as the resurrection chapter and we've read from this passage multiple times this morning. Paul wrote this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
watching for the Lord should cause our work for the Lord's kingdom, that is, for his mission, to abound more and more and more. The good news is that Jesus died, and he was raised from the dead, but he's coming again, and we will be raised as well. The question is, do we believe that? I, I don't mean, do we believe it like, like do we believe that somebody's gonna come pick us up for an event or, or work, and then we forget to set an alarm, and we forget to shower, and then we forget to get up, and we forget to be ready for that moment. I don't mean do we believe it like that, where you know it in your head, but it doesn't really affect your life. I mean, do we believe it so that the alarm is set for plenty of time, and we get up with enough time to shower and, and do our hair and make ourselves ready, and, and then we get up and, with enough time to sit by the window and watch expectantly. They're on their way. Do we believe it in a way that causes our lives to look different than if we did not believe it? Listen, if you look at your life and, and you say, oh, yeah, I believe Jesus is coming back, but there's no discernible difference in your passions, your urgencies, your priorities, then if you didn't believe that, if we could just scratch 1 Corinthians 15 out of the Bible, chuck the 14th fundamental truth out of our belief system, and it would not affect you at all, then you have to actually ask yourself, do I actually believe Jesus is coming? It's imminent, he's on his way. Or is it something that I've been taught that I think I'm supposed to do, I have to assent to, but my life is like that stinky handshake I offered to my favorite musician. It's like the person that I call and I'm frustrated with because I told them I was picking them up at 6.45 and they're still in bed when I get there. And they show no respect for me, my time, or for the fact that we have some place to be in the people that we're gonna inconvenience because we're not there on time. If that's how our lives are in relation to the return of Christ, then brother, sister in the Lord, it's time that we would ask the Holy Spirit to renew our urgency. It's time that we would do what the scripture says and cleanse our hands and purify our, our hearts so that they might be right with the Lord. And we might say, Lord, our urgency should cause us to have joy in the middle of sorrow. There ought to be a difference with how we grieve. There ought to be a difference with how we handle pain and stress and anxiety and difficulties of life. There ought to, yes, be deep sorrow when we lose people that we love because we recognize that there is pain in that, but alongside that there ought to be a great joy because our hope was never in this world. Our hope was not that somehow they were gonna beat the odds and live forever. Our hope was always that they would know Jesus and that when we wake up from death and Christ calls our names, that we will see them again. There ought to be a difference that is inspired in how we cleanse our hands and how we purify our lives so that the attachments that we see others have to this world, the addictions and the sinful longings are not characterizing our lives because we've laid them before Jesus and we've said my hope is not in the things of this world. It's not in, in how people tell me to identify with my sexuality or, or make decisions for myself or lay up treasures for myself here, but I'm laying up treasures in the kingdom that they cannot yet perceive, but that I know by faith is coming. We ought to cleanse ourselves and we ought to be passionate and be praying, Lord Jesus, help us to be urgent for the good news. Help us not to act as if it's no big deal that people don't know you because they're dying and they're on their way to eternal death if they don't know him. 
Should we not be urgent to share with them the gospel? Should we not lay down our fear that we'll look like fools and instead take up the, the, the thought and the prayer of the Apostle Paul that I'll be made a fool for Christ? This is how the end time should affect how we live right now. I'm going to ask the, if the keys could come, Shana. We just want to respond in this way for just a few moments. Perhaps you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. You've never given your life to him. You've never responded by faith and believed that he's the only way of salvation. The scripture says that salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Maybe you've never confessed Jesus as Lord, believed in him as your savior, that he rose again. And you don't have that faith in Christ, that reassurance that when you die or when Christ returns that you're right with him and you're ready for his kingdom. Today, there's an opportunity for you to do that, and it may seem funny to you because so often in our world and in, in the religions that we encounter, we're told that what we have to do in order to be right with God is we have to do an, a certain number of good works. We have to clean our lives up, and, and then we'll be right with God. But the Bible tells us this, that the wages of sin is death. And as far as I'm aware, no dead man has ever raised himself from the dead. Only someone who's living can raise someone from the dead. Only God can raise someone from the dead. So if the wages of your sin is death, if you're dead in your transgressions, if you're separated from God, then you have no hope of working. There is no work you can do. There's no cleaning up you can do that's gonna satisfy God's goodness and his justice in your life. The only hope you have is that God loved you. And the Bible says this, that God loved you in this way, specifically. It says this, that God loved you like this, that while you were still a sinner, while you were still dead in your transgressions, while you were still separated from God, when you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And then it says this, if you will confess with your mouth that the Jesus who died and God raised from the dead, if you will confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is, you will be changed right now. You'll be a new creation. And not only will you be changed now, but you will have the assurance that when Christ appears or when you die, he, you will be with him forever. He has saved you. He will protect you. He has covered your sin. And that's not a work you can do. It's a work he did for you. And you receive it by faith. Now it'll change you. It'll change you drastically so drastically that the Bible says that when you come to Christ and your faith is genuine, you're born again. It's like a new you. It's like you died and you rose again and maybe you've come to the point in your life where you'd say, man, I'd, I'd rather be dead. Good news for you. Jesus gives you an option that you could die to yourself and rise again in him. Maybe you've come to a point where you say, I feel separated from God. I don't know hope, I don't know meaning. I don't have purpose in my life. Good news for you. God says you can die to that and you can live again to the hope and purpose for which you were created in Christ Jesus, his intentions for you from the beginning. And so I'm gonna ask you to do this. If you just close your eyes for a minute, this is between you and God for just a moment. You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. You never confessed that he's Lord, believed in him for salvation, denied yourself, confessed your sin, believed that he rose from the dead and been saved. You've never done that, but you want to do that today. You want to believe in him. Maybe you've sensed today a sense of urgency in your own spirit. I need to do this. 
and to be right with the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, ministering to you, and I want to encourage you to respond to that. Now, what I'm about to do, this doesn't save you. I can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. I just want to help you respond and confess faith and believe in Christ this morning. And so I'm gonna ask if you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus and you wanna begin that today, confessing him as Lord and Savior. If you just do this, if you just lift up your hand so that in a moment I can pray with you. Is there anybody like that? You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus by faith, but you want that today. You've heard the good news of the gospel. You've heard that Jesus died for you, that God raised him from the dead. You wanna be right with him. You wanna be ready for his return and you aren't. This morning, would you just lift up your hand so that I can pray with you? Is there anybody like that? I'm going to wait just a minute. You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus and you want to begin it today. If you've joined us online, text the word. If you want to respond, text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061 and we'll respond to you and we would love to get in touch with you and pray with you as well. But if you're here and you don't have that hope in Christ, that blessed hope of his coming, that blessed hope of the resurrection, and you want to know his salvation today, would you just lift up your hand? Anybody like that? Right, we're going to move on from that not seeing any hands. I want to ask this believer for just a moment, would you respond to him? Maybe you'd say in your life, I've got sorrow and pain, and I don't know how to deal with it in a manner that also has hope. I want to ask for the Holy Spirit's help today to have joy and hope in the middle of my sorrow. Maybe you'd say, I recognize that I'm far too much in this world. My mind's constantly distracted by it. The Bible says, set your mind on things above, but my mind's constantly set on things below. The Word of God says to fix our eyes on Jesus, and you'd say, man, my eyes are fixed a lot of places other than Jesus. And you just want to call out to the Lord today and say, Lord, purify me. Cleanse me. Teach me to love your appearing. Maybe today you'd say, I'm just not as urgent as I should be for the lost. I, I have a hope in, in the resurrection, but... I've forgotten how urgent it is that others would hear that. I've become maybe too afraid of what people will think about me and I need to be reminded that I'm not here to look wise to the world. And if that means I've gotta be a fool for Christ, so be it. But I'm gonna be passionate, urgent about the mission Jesus left. If you find yourself in any of those things, you just wanna ask for the Lord's help. Would you just respond for a moment by standing and just begin in your own words to speak to the Lord, to ask him for the help in that area where you need. Even now, if that's you, if you just need, you need hope in the midst of sorrow, if you need to cleanse, you need to ask God's cleansing in your life, you need to ask for urgency in sharing the gospel. Would you just stand with me and let's just for a moment call out to the Lord and ask him for his help and revitalization of our trust and our hope that he is coming, that he would that he would let this be a, a, a reminder to us today that this is not a doctrine for the future. It's a, it's a belief for the, for the present. Lord Jesus, we call to you this morning and we confess that it's, it's fun to think about the end times, what might be coming. We wonder about current events, even God, and we, we wonder about what's happening in the world. So often, Lord, our fascination is not connected with an urgency in our spirits and with a day-to-day -day living that we do. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. Father, I pray for those who are needing hope in the midst of sorrow. Maybe the sorrows of this world have felt overwhelming and they've grown embittered. Their spirit is bitter. They're cynical. They have little hope for the future. They find themselves complaining, not giving thanks. They find themselves filled with sorrow rather than joy. Lord, we don't deny that there's sorrow in this life. 
But I pray that right now in the midst of that sorrow, you would awaken in them a hope of heaven and the joy of the Holy Spirit that will go alongside that sorrow and uphold them in the midst of it. Lord, I pray that you begin to work in their lives and heal pain and bitterness. I pray, God, that you begin to heal the, the, the difficulties of life, the questions that they've asked and have found it tr- difficult to answer. Lord, the grief that they felt. And I ask, Lord, that you would help them to experience healing today. I pray for those who are in need of purity. God, our lives maybe have grown too distracted by the things of this world. Father, there's always a distraction at hand today, always something to fix our eyes on other than Jesus. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would cleanse our hands, that you'd purify our hearts, and you'd help there to be a renewed longing internally for the things of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to be repulsed by the things of sin, to be repulsed by the ways of the world, to once again be grieved and, 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 and mourn over sin rather than ignoring it, rather than even maybe laughing at it, rather than maybe joking about it or rejoicing in it, that we would mourn over sin, that we would be sorrowful over the things that bring death and separation from you, and that our hearts and hands and lives and thoughts would be purified today, Lord, that we might be right with you and long and love your appearing. And Jesus, we pray individually and as a church, Lord, we are in need of boldness. Holy Spirit, we need your boldness We invite you to come and give us a new boldness. Forgive us, Lord, that so often we are concerned with how we look in this world. We're concerned with what others might think about us. We confess it, Lord, and we ask for forgiveness. But we ask, Lord, today not only for forgiveness, but for an empowering work of the Holy Spirit that would enable us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and would teach us to be fools for Christ, that others might hear the good news. If we must look like fools, that they might know the hope that we have have, then Lord, let us be able to say, so be it. That's a small price to pay that they might know the good of God through Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would teach us to keep our eyes fixed on your coming. We know that it's imminent. And yet, Father, sometimes the weight and the pressures of this life seem so much more urgent. Lord, teach us to hold the hope of heaven with just as much and more urgency. We love you, Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, today we rejoice. We don't wanna forget to rejoice in you, for this is not our blessed grievance. It's our blessed hope. Thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. Can we thank the Lord for the hope we have in Jesus, the hope of the resurrection that gives joy and peace, that provides for our hope. Lord, we bless your name. Jesus, we thank you. And Lord, now we pray that you would seal this work in our hearts, that it might not be something that we quickly forget, but that you would remind us of it over and over again. Holy Spirit, we want to be reminded, will you be the teacher for our hearts in this way? We love you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us. We hope you have a great week. We do have second Sunday at 6 prayer meeting tonight. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you 6 p.m. here in the sanctuary. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.